pretty much anything that can be built or has been built in traditional financial services, once you reach scalability in blockchain, should be portable over to decentralized rails. Just like the vast majority of business models that could be built over the internet have transitioned to the internet because it's a more effective means of deployment. I think at scale, you'll see the vast majority of financial use cases, which is completely digital domain, move over to these new rails. But some of the early applications that we've seen emerge are in the basic building blocks of financial services. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the best lesson for the recent crypto contagion is that decentralized finance held up very well against the collapse of centralized lending institutions. With me today, Rawson Havati, co-founder of Reflection Digital, to help me to discuss DeFi and where it is heading. Rawson, welcome to the show. Bernard, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been a fan of your earlier newsletter, Emerging Newsletter, and I have read it pretty interesting and I actually mistook you for someone else, but I was glad to actually got to know your secret identity for a while. But I've always been wanting to get you onto my show to talk about some of the most interesting things about crypto, even your previous experience as an investor with a sovereign wealth fund. But before, we always want to dive into everyone's origin stories. So how do you start your career? Yeah, no, I appreciate the the shout out to Emerging and my prior pseudonymous identity, Pondering Durian, but I guess we can dive into that later. In terms of my career start, so like a lot of young folks in the US, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So relatively early, I sold my soul and went to Wall Street. So did a quick stint at Credit Suisse in the M&A group in New York. Luckily was saved by an opportunity at Tomasic in the US. So they were basically building out their Western Hemisphere offices at the time. So I got recruited to join them relatively early in that life cycle in New York. So primarily growth equity investing across consumer internet and enterprise software. And then they actually opened up an office on the West Coast. So moved out to San Francisco with a similar domain focus. A couple of years in San Francisco, I actually got pretty excited about the tech ecosystem in Southeast Asia. So this was mid-2018 when it really did seem like the Southeast Asian tech ecosystem was set to inflect, right? So the China growth story, cloud, mobile, 600 million people all getting their first smartphone eight years after the fact that we saw it in China. So I packed up my bags and moved across the world and yeah, spent the, I guess the late 2018 to the end of 2020 flying around Southeast Asia. So Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, watching that growth story unfold and super, super exciting time to be in Southeast Asia. So was really happy I was able to witness that. And then actually around summer of 2020, DeFi summer happened and that rekindled my love for crypto and some of the use cases that were emerging. It really did seem like this was the future of financial services. So decided to make a career bet and ended up leaving Tomasic where I had a great experience. I just wanted to try something on my own. So we kicked off a Reflection Digital, myself and two partners. So Alan So and a gentleman named Janesh Patel at Integra. And basically I've crafted a, hold, a holding company that offers lower volatility, kind of market neutral crypto products to family offices and institutions. It's been a winding journey, but it's definitely super fun. And pretty exciting, right? You went to Tamasic, which is a Singapore's most well-known sovereign wealth funds and presumably LPs to a lot of VC funds in Silicon Valley. In your career journey, given that you have gone from East Coast, West Coast, and all the way to Southeast Asia, what are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I would say in general, three things have served me pretty well. It hasn't been that long, but it's been a pretty varied set of experiences. So. I would say one, a little bit cliche, but I think it's super true, would be just intellectual curiosity. Like I'm very drawn to people that are continuously engaging in new subject matters, particularly those that are actually like older in life. So they have a plethora of experiences and they're still super curious to learn about new stuff. So that's one that I think is super underrated. The other one is I feel pretty convicted, particularly young people. Most people should up their risk profile. I feel the downside that people think that they have when they start a new venture is actually capped for the vast majority of people, much more than they think. Just going for it and saying yes to new opportunities, even if they're uncomfortable, is traditionally been where I have grown the most in my career. And people think very differently in New York than they do in Atlanta, in San Francisco, in Singapore, in Taipei. And so I feel like pretty much every time that I've decided to take a chance and make a pretty big move, 
I feel like it has worked out really well. And I look back on it quite fondly. That's another one. And then I guess the last one, I'm actually, I'm pretty drawn to optimists. And I think that's a pretty underrated character trait where you you are fundamentally drawn to people that have a view of the lens that is contagious. The world is getting better. And if not, they have a vision for how it could get better. And I think over the last 200 years, <laughs> things have gotten materially better despite what the news cycle will tell you. And so I've always found that those types of people are pretty uplifting, are the ones that I'm generally quite drawn to. So those would be, I'd say the three character traits that, that stand out to me as the lessons that, uh, and the character traits that I would hope to cultivate. One thing before we get to the main subject of the day, you have recently started a podcast called Soulbound. And can you talk about what you discuss on that podcast with your co-host? I know Soulbound came from the idea of Soulbound NFTs. So I thought maybe that would be an interesting inspiration. So this was, I guess, another one of those kind of why not moments that, that I've had in my career. Um, I wanted to start a podcast since my San Francisco days, but never got around to it. It's, it's a lot of work, as I'm sure you know. But I had a friend, Alan Hellowell, who I met at Tomasic, who has a background with some of the Web2 giants in APAC. So he helped Alibaba IPO. He was in the C-suite at C-Group. But now he does early stage investing in Southeast Asia, had a podcast already focused on tech investing in Indonesia. But yeah, he was interested to start one in blockchain and crypto. Um, and he knew I was super excited about the space. And it's been a lot of time going pretty deep in the weeds. And so he asked me if I wanted to co-host and I figured, why not? And so I think we both feel pretty convicted that two of the mega trends during our lifetime is the rise of Asia and then the rise of value-based peer-to-peer networks. And so I think Soulbound is a podcast dedicated to the intersection of those two things. And just trying to get on investors and builders and innovators and regulators to case that that set of characters, just because obviously there's Analyze Asia, but in general, I think, which I'm a big fan of, by the way, but I do think relative to US and the West, there's actually a dearth of content in this part of the world. And hopefully we can try and echo some of those stories. And it's just an excuse to talk to super smart, really interesting people, which I always appreciate. One thing in podcasts that's very different from new sites is that it is non-zero sum. And that's one thing I learned about podcasting over these years. So actually, the more the merrier for me. So which comes to the main subject of the day, I want to talk to you about decentralized finance. So I think we live in interesting times, given that we are right in the midst of a crypto bear market. What are your thoughts on the recent crypto crash with the Terra Luna USD collapse, then fo followed by, of course, the insolvency of some lenders and some of them have also declared chapter 11 as well like celsius at voyager and then of course the collapse of the billion dollar hedge fund three arrows capital i think instead of trying to talk about what happened maybe i think what are the key learnings in this crypto bear cycle yeah it's definitely been a pretty wild three months so i think you basically summarized kind of some of the key events i think what we've learned over the last three months is that it wasn't different this time how I phrase this. I think a lot of people got excited about the thesis for the super cycle and the three arrows guys popularized it. And it was this attitude that the prevailing regime of monetary debasement was set to continue. And largely that these assets would come to be viewed as a store of value, you know, instead of the cyclical nature of the industry that we had seen over the last four years and repetitive four-year cycles, then this would be an extended bull run and crowning crypto as a new asset class. I think that clearly turned out not to be the case. I still think there's a ton of leverage in crypto and obviously the vast majority of institutional capital and retail capital for that matter did basically value these things as tech investments and high growth tech investments. And the correlation to the NASDAQ is well above 0.8. And so that transition to a store of value and a digital commodity clearly hasn't materialized. And at the same time, there's still a lot of leverage in crypto. And so the reflexivity is still very much there. And we are still relatively early in the industry's life cycle. And so I do think it was not different this time. And I also think, sadly, a bunch of the centralized parties in the ecosystem proved to have very poor risk management. It was liquidity management 101. You matched your assets and your liabilities on the same time frame, And some of the bigger actors weren't even covering the basics. So I think when the tide came back out, a lot of folks were left exposed, which is a shame because I'm still very excited about the space and ultimately think that open source financial services is very much the future. But 
I think we've learned that the industry is still not super mature and it still is prone to cycles, which I think we've seen over the last three to four months. So still early innings and there will always be another up cycle. But I think that was a key takeaway from what's happened over the last three months. So there is a silver lining that came out from this cycle, which is decentralized finance and we call that DeFi. It remained actually robust in the midst of this crypto meltdown. So I think Arthur Hayes made this pretty interesting comment from one of his blog posts uh, called number three. And he said something along the lines of when you remove trust from the equation and rely purely on transparent lending standards executed by impartial computer code, you get a better outcome. This is the lesson to be learned. I think maybe to start off this conversation, and of course, given my audience comes from all walks of life and may not be very familiar, can you provide my audience an introduction to define what decentralized finance or what DeFi means? Yes, I appreciate the reference to Arthur. I think he's a great writer, so I would give a shout out to his blog. 100% agree. I think he is very right. And I guess a short anecdote, I recently attended the Point Zero Forum in Switzerland. And so this was a collaboration between the Singapore authorities and MAS and Elevandi, and then the Swiss financial authorities, and then a lot of the big hitters in the industry. And I think given what's happened over the last two to three months, there was a focus from the panelists on needing to rebuild trust. And I thought it was a little bit funny because, and and potentially ironic, because the whole point of decentralized finance is to craft basically automated trustless protocols. So that's not a problem. And so I, I think one of the narratives that seemed to be missing from that discussion was, despite the fact that one poorly designed protocol did blow up and to evaporate $50 billion over the course of two days, that's obviously something that should be paid attention to so it doesn't happen again. I think what left a little bit under under focused was the fact that the vast majority of large DeFi protocols held up really well. So Aave, Maker, Compound, Uniswap, all of the big boys that have been through multiple cycles actually proved their mettle. And so even though you had the third largest stablecoin in the ecosystem essentially evaporate, I was. I thought there might be some systemic shocks to the system, and actually, all of the code executed as planned. Um, and so, I actually thought it was a pretty big proof point for the industry that if the protocol is designed effectively, then it's actually the best mitigation tool there is. And so, where we saw the contagion pop out was actually the centralized companies, right? So, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, Vault all these guys that had made irresponsible loans or had poor risk mitigation and were left holding the bag did not have kind of these automated mechanisms for reducing risk. And yeah, I think that was a pretty key takeaway. So I think, I guess back to your initial question, if I had to define decentralized finance, I would say it's an open financial system built on permissionless, open source blockchains governed by distributed communities. You know, it's still very early in the life cycle of decentralized finance and open source software, but I think we'll get progressively better at building these things. And they'll come to be viewed over time as safer than the company equivalent, which is subject to human error and the credit cycle. Mm. And what features does DeFi protocols have that distinguished it from traditional or centralized finance? So I think some of those attributes that I was touching on, so transparency, the open source nature of the code, the, I guess, the automated nature of transactions that have been pre-baked into how the code will operate, if then, essentially. And then I would say like the other thing and the other reason that I'm super bullish on decentralized finance or open finance is the fact that everything is composable, right? So instead of the traditional financial system where there's a lot of data silos, there's a lot of 1970s tech stacks, the fact that this is a complete infrastructure overhaul in the form of open source software just means that all of these quote unquote money Legos can interact in really cool and novel ways. So this flywheel is still in its very early innings. The space is virtually two, three years old max. And so over time, I think any kid can spin up a hub and start pulling in building blocks from the hundreds of thousands of other open source developers. I think the pace of innovation relative to traditional financial services should accelerate way, way faster. There will be experiments that fail. But I do think over time, if you look back from the vantage of five, 10 years out, it'll be very clear where the dynamism is.
you were alluding to earlier that the protocols like Aave, Compound, Uniswap held up relatively well during this period when Terra actually collapsed. I think what made it hold up incredibly well? Is it just because of the way the transparency of the protocols and also the smart contracts that were being placed in order for all the financial transactions to go through these automated market makers that makes it very difficult to game the system like the way how the C5 lending institutions, which they shot themselves behind some opaque structure and nobody knows exactly what is inside because everything on-chain is transparent anyway. I think that's the gist of it, right? Where you actually have I guess the first thing to highlight is, at least for now, the vast majority of money markets on-chain are over-collateralized. And so in order to take out a loan on an on-chain money market today, you generally have to post collateral in excess of the loan that you take out. And it's agreed upon in code that if your collateral goes below a certain threshold, then the collateral that you had will be liquidated in order to keep the protocol solvent. So I think that is a design choice that unfortunately a lot of centralized lenders did not make. And they made unsecured loans to folks that were making, I'd say, pretty risky deployments with bulk customer funds in terms of their leverage and their risk management. And and the fact that one, all of this is open and immutable. So you can go and check the code base of Aave or Compound to make sure it's supposed to execute the way that it is representing itself. Whereas in centralized finance, you do have to trust the intermediary to make good decisions and to make decisions that are not putting customers' money at risk. I think it comes back to the fact that if these protocols are designed effectively, then they are the best form of consumer protection available. So I almost see it as a spectrum where a poorly designed protocol is basically the worst form of consumer protection. A company is an element of trust. They can have various attributes of risk management that are favorable or not. And then if you actually get it down pat, then a protocol should be the best form of consumer protection because it can never make a human mistake, assuming it's been constructed properly. And I think the situation for the Terra Luna UST collapse is because it's an algorithmic stablecoin. And I'm actually anti-algorithmic stablecoin for a very long time. But I do have a certain view that I would change my opinion if it has a real economy. I mean, if you think about it, fiat is just an algorithmic stablecoin, right? But we have construction, we have transportation, we have actual infrastructure that are collateralized assets that shows you a real economy that pr- promotes a GDP. And that, that is what makes it relatively different. But I've read a very interesting article that you have written many months back, and I think it's the macro case for DeFi. I, I want you to sort of give me some highlights of that article. And I think it's actually a very interesting way of thinking about DeFi as well. What is the macro? case for DeFi from your point of view? I think the macro case for DeFi in short is kind of some of the stuff that we already talked about, which is a new financial system built on fundamentally better rails. So transparent, composable, that should lead to an element of compounding and innovation that will unlock one, a lot of access and a lot of innovation in financial services. But I think in that article, which was written four or five months ago for things went south in, in DeFi and the crypto market in general, was trying to make the point that there was an arbitrage that could be made between the traditional financial system and the decentralized financial system. And so the arbitrage was essentially there was this super fast, high growth economy in crypto that suffered from a shortage of US dollar liquidity and US dollar funding. And so this was at the exact same time that there was ubiquitous capital in the traditional financial market. And because of quantitative easing, because of COVID, because the Fed had shoved $4 trillion into the economy, there was ubiquitous funding in traditional capital markets. But in DeFi, there was a lot of friction getting that capital into funding protocol growth. And so because of regulation, because of investor education, because of a lack of infrastructure and institutional grade infrastructure, getting those dollars into crypto proved to be pretty difficult. There was very real friction. And at the time, there was still very high demand for US dollar funding in crypto, both in terms of providing liquidity to emerging protocols and in terms of the demand for increased leverage on crypto trades during the bull market. And so there was an arbitrage where yields were materially higher in decentralized finance versus traditional financial services. I think over the last three to four months, the market for crypto and DeFi has cooled off materially. 
And at the same time, the interest rates in the traditional economy have obviously been going up to try and tame inflation. And so those spreads have narrowed pretty significantly. But I still think one of the interesting takeaways is that there's actually an inverse relationship between interest rates in DeFi and the physical or real world economy for the time being. And so this is a little bit technical, but in decentralized finance, one of the, I'd say the primary mechanisms for yield is something called yield farming. And so I take my dollars to my US dollar funding and I provide liquidity to a protocol. And in exchange, one, I'm basically making a market. So I get access to some of the transaction fees, but in order to help them grow their network effect, and I'm being an early supporter of the network, they will actually give me tokens, which is almost like quasi equity in the network. And so when interest rates are coming down, speculation on the future value of that network is going up. And so the value of the rewards that I'm getting and my effective variable yield is increasing and then vice versa. So when the Fed increases interest rates, speculation for the value of future networks come down. But I'm a pretty big believer that over the long run, if you look at automation, you look at demographics, you look at the debt loads in the centralized economy, the fact that it's 400% debt to GDP, I think long run, real interest rates are definitely going to be negative and nominal interest rates are going to be low to quite negative. And so I'm pretty optimistic that the decentralized and DeFi interest rates for the foreseeable future should be superior to what you can get in traditional financial markets. Mm. Just to dive deeper on that arbitrage between the interest rates, between DeFi and sort of uh, treasuries in different countries, let's say, let's look at US Treasury, US interest rate as such. Would there be an equilibrium point that harmonizes both interest rates or is it actually in the long term that there will always be this minimum arbitrage because of the how these financial systems are constructed? It's a good question. And I don't have a mm. crystal ball to see how it play out. I do think over time, you will see increasing regulation, which guides large pools of institutional capital into crypto in a way that they are comfortable with. And so the differences and some of the spreads that you're seeing kind of between the existing economy and the crypto economy should dampen over time. However, there are still some elements of yield in crypto today that are relatively unique. And I also believe that there will continue to be, I would say, one exponential growth in crypto and the number of protocols that require US dollar funding. And at least for the foreseeable future, this inverse relationship between yields in crypto and traditional interest rates. And so I don't know what happens long term. I imagine there's the market's pretty efficient and some of that R will get washed out pretty effectively. But I think in the near to medium term, it's still a pretty effective trade in my mind. Mm. And that arbitrage could also be coming from that DeFi may have actual digital economies that have real token ownership. For example, I think the metaverse I, that people are alluding to these days, that may be construction of another digital economy that is outside of the realms of what we have physically might provide the arbitrage as well. Yeah. And I think over the next 10 years, I think a lot of those economies will likely grow substantially. And you're starting at such a low base and the barriers to creation in the digital sphere are quite low. So yeah, I'd say there will be continued opportunities to one, make loans, I guess, in the metaverse or the digital economy, but also for DeFi rails to start penetrating real world assets and using some of this new infrastructure to push into traditional real economy productive type loans. Mm. Pardon my pun on this. This is like bringing second life to life, actually. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah. I want to also distinguish uh, DeFi from C5, but I think for the audience out there, it's easier for them to make some visualization. So I'm going to just ask these questions. Can you just provide some examples from the DeFi landscape? I think we talk about Uniswap, Aave, Compound, and even DYDX. What makes them different and why are they examples of DeFi? You know, kind of back to our conversation earlier, pretty much anything that can be built or has been built in traditional financial services, once you reach scalability in blockchain, should be portable over to decentralized rails. Just like the vast majority of business models that could be built over the internet have transitioned to the internet because it's a more effective means of deployment. I think at scale, you'll see 
the vast majority of financial use cases, which is completely digital domain, move over to these new rails. But some of the early applications that we've seen emerge are in the basic building blocks of financial services. And so it's, I guess, one, the most basic would be payments, right? And I'd say particularly cross-border payments. If you spin up a Solana wallet and you try and fund someone halfway across the globe, the experience is 10x to 100x better than using a bank and doing a wire. Like, I hate my banking institutions, particularly in the US. It's super painful. I can't even describe how much better it is to use some of these, I guess, faster DeFi protocols for that use case. So payments and remittances seems pretty obvious. I think we've seen in a downturn, some of these large lending protocols like Aave, like Compound, like Maker, hold up quite well relative to some of these centralized lenders. And to our point earlier around being trustless and effectively liquidating collateral on time and without delay is something that over time, more and more people will get more comfortable with and look to trust greater than a banking institution that still can be prone to the credit cycle. I guess the other examples you mentioned are around exchange. So the leading ones are Curve and Uniswap that I guess you use a slightly different mechanism to incentivize capital for exchange and swapping. But instead of using an order book, you basically incentivize folks to post their own liquidity to the network that can then be used by other counterparties to trade. So pretty similar to NASDAQ or a Binance, but in a decentralized manner. And then we're actually starting to see the emergence of certain derivatives protocols as well, which has traditionally been quite difficult because blockchains are slow and clunky right now. But they are reaching kind of the scalability phase where, you know, DYDX and Mango markets are actually quite usable and pretty competitive relative to their centralized counterparts. So I think it's it's actually quite promising and the space is two to three years old. So imagine what's going to happen in five years time. And to dive deeper into the lending protocols, I think one interesting thing is that you pointed in a paper that you talk about actually there are three buckets for lending protocols. We talked about that earlier, like the over-collateralized on-chain protocols probably about 50 billion total lock value at one point in time, TVL is total value lock uh, as a definition. And then there is the second group that is the off-chain centralized lending lenders that probably about US 20 billion in active loans that may be a couple of months ago's data point. And then now you have the third case where it's the awkward offline to online or the other way around hybrids where it's about 2 billion locked in TVL. I think one, one thing I thought it, is, it doesn't matter whether what the TVL value really looks like, but what are the mechanisms for these lending protocols that can bring the on-chain to the off-chain for lending in the real world? Because I think at the moment, it's still lending to trade within. We haven't really seen actual physical assets being tokenized in reality. Yeah, so you've been doing your research, Bernard. I'm, I'm impressed to diving back into my old research paper. So I appreciate that. I guess for the audience, so I wrote a paper called DeFi, The Next Frontier, The Future of DeFi and O2O Lenders, which was in reference to on-chain lenders, basically funding real-world productive use cases, right? So making loans to either financial institutions or potentially emerging market growth stories, things like that. And so... I guess I outlined in that paper in crypto, there's largely three different types of lenders. So one is the on-chain money markets that I think have generally behaved quite well, even in the crypto sell-off, but that's generally an over-collateralized loan that you would take out against your crypto. Then there's the centralized companies, which like Celsius and Nexo and some of these guys that have recently come into trouble, that is essentially aggregating retail checks and making loans to financial institutions, often in an under-collateralized manner. And then the one that I'm excited about that's super young right now is basically using DeFi rails to fund real-world loans. And so some of the leaders in the space are Maple Finance or Goldfinch that aggregate capital in a cross-border manner very efficiently on-chain and then can deploy it to potentially fintech partners in Africa or Indonesia in the case of Goldfinch to fund growth or aggregate capital in a transparent on-chain manner to fund loans to financial institutions like Alameda in the case of Maple. And so I think this is still super, super early and it is a little bit messy because you do see these two worlds colliding where the trustless nature of DeFi meets, I guess, legal jurisdictions and precedent and all of that messiness. So I think there's a lot that's going to be needed to work through in order to do it fluidly. 
but the real world economy is obviously orders of magnitude larger than the crypto economy. So I think that growth story is inevitable and should be good for the space and see more, I guess, productive use cases of crypto lending outside of just more leverage for speculation, which I think gets tiresome after a while. But it's interesting you mentioned this, right? I think there are some physical assets in the real world being now getting into tokenized, for example, carbon credits. I mean, you see a diamond doesn't out in the market. Do you think it's going to be a case-by-case basis or is there going to be some experimentation as long as they don't hit a certain market capitalization that threatens the real world finance? I think people are still open to the experimentation of actually tokenizing these physical assets into the digital realm through the blockchain. So I think it's a pretty big opportunity. And in my mind, it seems pretty clear that's the world that we're heading to. I essentially view that as a little bit of an infrastructure upgrade or kind of the next relevant phase in digitization. So just like a lot of businesses took a while to get the latest ERP or CRM software module to, to essentially make their business more efficient, I feel like tokens and tokenization of assets will be an infrastructure upgrade to like capital markets and making it much more efficient, much more traceable. And so whether that happens in a more centralized, regulated manner or in an environment that's much more of a public blockchain, I happen to think it will probably be the latter. But I do think tokenization of assets, probably with some sort of element of regulation attached to it, like we have in the existing financial markets, seems very likely just because I think the infrastructure will prove superior. Mm. I think one interesting example I've recently seen is MakerDAO that seems to be doing the standing in for central banks. They have two very interesting examples and I actually want you to elaborate on them. So one of them is, can you elaborate further on how MakerDAO works and then how did they manage to do the 7.8 million US dollar loan to Tesla? And also they also done a partnership with Maple as well. So I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where some of these established DeFi protocols are actually pushing out into the real world. So leaving the protected realm of crypto and pushing out into legal jurisdictions or partnerships with real businesses. And so in this example, they teamed up with Tesla. And so they are actually going to uh, provide a loan to a Tesla repair shop. And so their, I guess their DAI and their decentralized currency that they are printing would effectively be backed by real-world assets. And so I think the maker community largely came to the conclusion that, hey, we've proved our model works in decentralized finance with over-collateralization of crypto. But in order to maximize our impact and our growth, we really do need to push into the real world and start making real-world loans. And so I think one of the things that they're discovering is the most effective and efficient means of doing that is actually partnering with other kind of quasi, I guess, protocol-like institutions like Maple in order to distribute their loans. And so I think the best metaphor is actually a, a central bank and commercial bank equivalent, but on-chain in kind of the form of a transparent protocol. And so in this situation, like Maker is effectively taking the role of the Fed and providing funds or quote-unquote printing money into contracts that Maple finance will then lend out to either it's Alameda for trading or potentially real-world loans like this, this Tesla repair shop. And so I think it's a pretty interesting evolution where you, these guys are starting to challenge the banking system. But in a way, it's just a, a bank that's on-chain and automated and transparent and everyone can see what's going on as opposed to being a black box. And so I think there are added risks that come with under-collateralized loans. But in my mind, it seems inevitable that these two worlds would start colliding. Mm. Reminds me of that famous conversation between Sam Beckman-Fried and Matt Levine in Odd Lots, where it's about getting that black box and making the black box more valuable. I wanted to just zoom in a little bit on that. When Sam Beckman-Fried actually went and going to rescue some of those lending institutions in trouble, do you foresee that also they are now also becoming like a lender of last resorts or some JP Morgan moment in the 1908 to try to stabilize the markets before you start tanking towards oblivion? I think obviously it's a good thing for the space to have a player that behaved responsibly and has access to a decent amount of cash. And so I think when we come out of the other side of this, it seems like 
you know, FTX and Alameda and Sam Bankman-Fried are going to be very well positioned because they are one, kind of backstopping the crypto community and two, hopefully helping to protect some of those retail lenders that might have gotten hurt otherwise. But obviously they're scooping up assets on the cheap. And so I don't think it's purely altruistic. And I have a feeling I'm a long-term believer in this space, but the people that manage to not blow up and have cash when things get tight are the ones that are going to prosper long-term. And I think FTX and Sam and Alameda are definitely the guys to look at this cycle in terms of consolidating the industry and being pretty dominant force in crypto long-term. I I would say the same for JP Morgan. If people have read the history of the House of Morgan done by Ron Chernoff on that, even for those moments as well, when they do the morganization of industries in that period of time. I think one interesting component of decentralized finance is the role of stable coins. What is the role of stable coins in DeFi? I mean, it's also in current times of instability because of inflation that's going on. I think the CPI reported yesterday was 9.1% and we are in the middle of July. And then there is also the Russia-Ukraine war, which don't seem to be ending anytime soon. So how do we look at the role of stablecoins for DeFi in this period of time? I think stablecoins have largely emerged on the scene as one of the killer use cases of DeFi. So for the unfamiliar, this is essentially tokenized representations that mimic a US dollar or a euro um, in terms of price fluctuation. And so it's usually some sort of soft peg or pretty tight that is the representation of a US dollar equivalent on chain. Um, And there's various different types. There's fiat backed, which is USDC and Tether, which is basically backed by US dollars or US treasuries in a bank account or slightly higher risk in the case of Tether, leaning towards commercial paper or crypto collateralized ones or algorithmic like we've talked about. But I think in this environment, I think it's actually really good for the US dollar in terms of adoption. If you are a citizen of an emerging market nation with a history of poor monetary policy and fiscal responsibility, if you're in Sri Lanka right now or Venezuela or Argentina over the last 15 years, you are probably very keen on firing up an internet connection and getting access to US dollars. And so in terms of adoption of US dollars globally, I think it will only strengthen, but obviously that will provide a challenge to monetary sovereignty for smaller nations, particularly those that have implemented capital controls and things like that. And so I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of adoption. But I also think longer term, and this is getting a little bit out there, so maybe some of your listeners will come after me on Twitter. But I do think there's no reason that once you've reached scale, and you have a potentially both decentralized and efficient stablecoin, that isn't necessarily backed by US dollars in a bank account, but mimics that that price point, like why it has to be pegged to US dollar monetary policy. I think you're going to see a lot of experimentation in the space, but eventually one of these large decentralized stablecoins will say, hey, maybe we try a slightly different monetary policy. And instead of increasing M2 by 6 to 8% or potentially 27% in the event of a large pandemic, Maybe we have slightly less expansionary monetary policy and maybe people around the globe kind of vote with their feet that they would rather store their wealth in something that isn't seeing 9.1% inflation. And so I think that's an interesting thing to watch. That's definitely not short term. I think for the short term, I think King Dollar is, is very much on the throne. But over time, I think there will be interesting experiments that will compete with centralized governments in terms of monetary policy and potentially be seen as superior because they are immutable, because they are algorithmic, um, and because they can be trusted and and aren't as varied. And so I think that's something to really look out for over the next 10, 20 years, um, if some of these experiments actually reach mass adoption and have a different monetary policy than fiat governments. I once had this conversation with Balaji, Suresh Savan, and Suzu from Three Arrows, and there was this interesting thinking about geopolitical risk as well. So if I were to think of China, China has already put out its stance that they will not allow any cryptocurrencies to create their own CBDC, China digital currency, which is their own version of their stablecoin. I think the US, will either they have to make one or what they might just do is co-op circle USDC and make that their default digital currency. And then the question then goes to what about the rest of the world? And the common consensus that came out from that conversation was it is still Bitcoin. 
because you're actually seeing the countries that some of you mentioned that they're very unstable could actually starting to apply Bitcoin as a legal tender. But the problem is that Bitcoin is extremely volatile. So my question is that maybe the world may still tolerate maybe one or two more stable coins, maybe one from the EU or they will adopt Tether, but I don't think Tether is a good candidate. Or maybe a large nation like India with a billion population, they may decide to do one stable coin by themselves. I think the question then is, how does these stable coins, will they be co-opted or is Bitcoin still going to be remain as the sort of a currency legal tender for the rest of the world to basically price against USDC and the CBDC because because of the trade war now between China and US, you're not going to have these two currencies trying to talk to each other and they are going to go through an intermediary and that candidate seems to be Bitcoin because it's decentralized and no one owns it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this could be a potentially long response and I guess this is a little bit more off the cuff, but I mean, I still think it's very difficult to compete with Bitcoin's origin story. And I'm not sure that I buy the argument of Bitcoin as a payment network. And I know there is a decent amount being built on Lightning and potential collateralization of Bitcoin to use it as a payment network. But I still see it much more as the potential store of value gold type thesis in the digital domain. So I think instead of a payment network, it's more likely to see potential adoption in the form of central bank reserves, not tomorrow, but over the coming years. And then there will always be some sort of rehypothecation off that base, which is hard money. And so I'm still pretty confident that there will be a long-term debt cycle. There's just a pretty large reset every 70 to 80 years. And traditionally, there's a reset to a gold standard or another form of hard money, just because debts build up over time and there needs to be some sort of restructuring or in the words of Ray Dalio, a beautiful deleveraging, which I think will be harder to come by this go around. So yeah, I think in terms of payment use cases, I'm still more of a fan of uh, some sort of stable coin that actually achieves the thesis of decentralization, as well as censorship resistance being used for payments on a global scale. But I think there will definitely be a role for Bitcoin kind of as a store of value and potentially see it adopted by more governments in the form of central bank reserves or elements of legal tender. But that's my view and biology is a lot smarter than me. So I would listen to him. No, no, no. I think it's, I think we're still forming the thesis. And I think we're just trying to work out whether the world eventually still goes towards the currency piece or actually going back to, I call it digital gold standard, because that is the world beforehand to trade before then, right? <laughs> But so I guess my challenge to that thesis would be that I think the vast majority of people still choose to exchange values in something that not is not as massively volatile versus a basket of goods. And I think Bitcoin, because of its stagnant monetary policy and the early nature of its adoption curve, still has a lot of volatility. I think that will dampen over time and potentially it could emerge as some sort of payment mechanism, particularly in a deflationary world over the longer term. But I guess my own stance is it's still a while from providing that service and something that more mimics the purchasing power of a basket of goods and stays relatively constant is more likely to see mass adoption, as we've seen with the proliferation of stable coins recently. Fair point. And Rosson, I just really wanted to hear from someone who's pretty enlightened your point of view on that thesis, because I think it's, it's something that I've been also thinking a lot. I think the beauty of going into crypto, I think you surely you agree with me, is this the combination of economics, legal, and sometimes even physics and math all mashed together into one, one lump piece together. But I think one interesting question to get back to the conversation we have, why is regulating DeFi going to be a difficult challenge for regulators out there? I do not envy the regulators. I think it's a very tough job. It is innately paradoxical. It's called decentralized finance because it's aiming to have decentralized governance. And so jurisdictions that traditionally would go after a couple of large centralized intermediaries to enforce the law and whatever legislation is passed, no longer have that entity like a bank or an exchange or a CFI lender to go after. It's very difficult to strike that balance. At the same time, I was very encouraged by my conversations at Point Zero with some of the regulators in Singapore and Switzerland who seem to be very forward thinking and realize that these are the networks of the future. 
And they're keen to capitalize on that and not cut off their economies from some of the innovation and the networks of the future. And so I think striking that balance is very hard because it's inherently states versus stateless money. It's KYC versus encryption. You're trying to put a, a circle into a square or whatever the phrase is. But yeah, so I think eventually what is likely to happen is that regulators will, I think in the vast majority of jurisdictions, try and have a balance between enforcing via centralized intermediaries and the on and the off ramp between traditional financial services and decentralized finance. So if you get the exchanges to KYC everyone, and then you use big data analytics like chain analysis to go after, I think it's only 0.2% of money laundering transactions that have been I guess, spotted in DeFi now by some of these big data analytics firms, then they might actually find that blockchains and kind of public ledgers are a much better way to actually regulate financial services effectively. But I think it, it will be challenging to strike that balance. Mm. And I think the way you spell out the criteria is actually more or less the kind of mental frameworks that regulators might need to provide regulation on DeFi. I have a very curious question because I had my last conversation with Cosmo and I'm this is a question that I think every day of my life because I'm investing in crypto, thinking about the future of crypto, or even partaking in that economy in a few years' time. What do you think the crypto extinction events would be like for DeFi? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say from my point of view, there's nothing that would happen to any DeFi application or set of DeFi applications that could kill DeFi. I think the biggest existential threat would be a vulnerability in the underlying blockchains that they're built on top of. And so if you find a very large security threat in Ethereum or Solana or Bitcoin, which underprints a lot of these applications, then that would be, I think, my biggest concern in terms of an existential threat. But I think regulation for every China, there's going to be another subset of countries that provide a regulatory haven for crypto assets. So I think the regulatory arbitrage will always exist. And then I also think these are experiments and you're going to see a lot of large DeFi applications potentially fail. But over time, the ones that stand the test of time, kind of cycles and the tests will harden similar to the open source software, which underpins much of the internet today. It's just fundamentally better when hundreds of thousands to millions of people have looked at it and used it. And yeah, I think my own view would be the security of the blockchain itself versus any particular application vulnerability. Mm, okay, I'm going to stop being apocalyptic and pessimistic and I want to go to the optimistic side. What are the current trends in DeFi that you're most excited about? given that it's the time to build now with a bear market happening for crypto. And I guess, what are the most interesting innovations that you want to see in the next wave? Yeah, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I do think I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the space. I've voted with my feet. I just think the cyclicality of the industry is still very much here. So obviously the super cycle hasn't quite played out, but I do think there will always be another up cycle. And so I actually wrote a post recently called The Fourth Wave that tries to articulate the narratives that I expect to peak during the next cycle. And so if you look back over time, it's typically four-year intervals, but 2013 was sovereign money, 2017 was Ethereum and programmable money and smart contracts, uh, 2020 was DeFi summer, then 2021 NFTs and metaverse. So it tends to move quite quickly and fluidly. But my bet for kind of the next upcycle where I'm particularly excited would be uh, one, Web3 infrastructure. So I think using peer-to-peer -peer distributed incentives to build out physical infrastructure networks, either actually physical or digital. So things like Filecoin for storage or Helium for building out a hotspot network that could potentially provide a useful service at a price point much lower than some of the highly CapEx uh, incumbents, right? Like AT&T or Verizon in the case of Helium. I think there's a massive opportunity there to build out distributed networks that compete better than companies. I would say another one that we talked about that I'm quite excited about is soulbound tokens and on-chain reputation. Um, so I think the unlock there in terms of under-collateralized lending, or potentially on-chain advertising, or actually on-chain governance, right? If you know the type of people and from their past behaviors that you want to be governing and interacting with your protocol, then that's a massive unlock in a space that I think still has a long way to go in terms of governing more effectively in a, dist a distributed manner. And then I think dovetailing off that, I'm pretty excited about 
actually Web3 social. I think it's still super early days and some of these infrastructure pieces have to come alive to make it a reality. But the, I mean, the value prop and the product market fit is obviously quite proven with billions of people using social media profiles. And so if you actually provide more ownership and better monetization for creators and people producing content, then I would be very excited to potentially back some of those types of networks in the next cycle. And lastly, I think a very it's a little bit less exciting, but a potentially massive growth area is this on-chain to off-chain lending space, which is super young, but lending in the real world is super fragmented and, and just like a colossal market. So if you can have a more effective, more transparent mechanism for distributing loans and underwriting more effectively through coordinated parties, I think that will be an area that'll see a pretty large inflection point in the next cycle as well. So pretty bullish there. Thank you for that optimism. So the news of crypto being dead is largely exaggerated. Okay, Rawson, many thanks for coming on the show. In closing, I have two quick questions. The first one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Ah, yeah. So I'm a pretty avid reader, but I'm actually pretty ADD. So I'm one of those guys that's reading three to six books at any given time, but making pretty limited progress. But a couple that I'm actively reading right now one is The Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington, which I think is largely a response to Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man. And it just grapples with what comes after liberalism. And so it's written from the perspective of the mid-90s after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So I think that's a pretty worthwhile read that is starting to play out a little bit in the decades since. Another one I'm reading is Bourgeois Equality by Diedre. McCloskey, I think it's pronounced. And so that's a professor in, I believe, U Chicago, who basically tries to track like how the modern world became rich. And she traces it back to the esteem of society of like bourgeois values that were typically actually disdained by a lot of people in favor of like aristocratic values. So I thought that's a, a pretty worthwhile read, even though it's a, a little bit of a slog. And then lastly, I'm reading The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, which I think anytime you get an author that can peer into the human soul and provide a lens into human nature, that's something that is immensely valuable because it doesn't change very often. So I think that's a very valuable read as well. Mm. Those are great recommendations. And I'm going to start looking at one or two of them because I haven't read uh, them. Please, so, please do. Yeah. Yeah. How do my audience find you? I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Rawson underscore Haverty. So R-A-W-S-O-N-H-A-V-E-R-T-Y. I write a newsletter, reflectiondigital.substack.com, where I explore some of these crypto-related topics now. And then, yeah, if anyone's interested in lower volatility fund products, Reflection Digital, obviously it's a choppy market, but fortunately we're relatively conservative, so have held up pretty well. So yeah, if anyone pings me, feel free to DM. I'm typically pretty responsive. So thank you. And also, of course, check out Rawson's new Sobound Asia. Ah, yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for the <laughs> reminder. We should have one coming out next week. So pretty excited about that. So thank you for the reminder. Mm, cool. You can definitely find us on all podcast channels. And of course, if you are on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating so that we can be discovered easily. And of course, tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia, and give us your feedback as well. I'm going to start opening the tab for advertising given the world of inflation. So wait, I'll check it to. out. Yeah, Rosson, many thanks for coming on the show, but this will not be the last time you'll be on. So I'll definitely be talking to you many times around. All right, looking forward to it. It's been a, it's been a blast. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, hopefully those ads make it a sustainable enterprise. So uh, Analyze Asia is around for a while. So I appreciate it. Run it, run it, run it.